0: I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Oh, Thank you so, so very much, Regina. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And today's program is done in collaboration with the Kidney Cancer Association and Cancer Care. And the title of the program is Advances in the Treatment of Renal Cell Cancer. Today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Exalexis, Inc., and a grant from Genentech, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now we have over 200 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Bahrain, Canada, Colombia, Egypt, Morocco, Saudi Arabia, and the United Kingdom. So this is a global call as well. And uh, we are delighted that you are all on this call today really have chosen the taken the time to spend this next hour with us. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Paplos Massul. And Dr. Massul will be assistant professor, Department of Genitor Urinary Medical Oncology, Division of Cancer Medicine, University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Masou will be addressing an overview of renal cell cancer in the context of COVID, Omicron, seasonal flu analogies, at current standard of care for early stage renal cell cancer, treatment for metastatic renal cell cancer, and new treatment approaches. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Nasul. This is um
2: a common cancer overall, it is the sixth most common cancer in men in the United States and eighth most common cancer in women in the United States. It's typically twice more common in men compared with women, and it occurs predominantly in the fifth or sixth decade of life with an average age in the mid-60s. But patients can be as young as, as three or five years old and as old as uh, 90 or more. Um, And the other important thing to keep in mind is that very often we call this disease kidney cancer, but we may mean many different diseases, many different entities. The most common type of kidney cancer is called clear cell kidney cancer, and we call it clear cell because the cells look clear under the microscope. And About 75% of kidney cancer cases are clear cell kidney cancer. But then the rest, the other 25%, is under the umbrella term non-clear cell kidney cancer. And we call it that because the cells don't look clear under the microscope. And under this umbrella term, there are many, many, many different types, like papillary kidney cancer, chromophobe kidney cancer, translocation kidney cancer, renal medullary carcinoma, many types, each of which has different prognosis, different management, different treatment approaches. This is why it is absolutely essential that you know what kidney cancer type you have. And as the science keeps evolving, we're becoming better and better at understanding more how each subtype behaves and how best to treat it. The other important thing in mind is to think about the extent of the disease. And about 60% of patients with kidney cancer will have what we call localized disease, which is disease that is um, confined only in the kidney. So it's only in the kidney. It hasn't spread anywhere else. Regional disease is when it has spread to lymph nodes around the kidney. And then what we call stage four or metastatic disease, which happens in about 15 to 20% of kidney cancer cases, is the scenario whereby the kidney cancer has spread to more distant organs like the lungs, more distant lymph nodes, the bone or the brain. One important distinction Um, For of clear cell kidney cancer compared with just about any other cancer really is that clear cell kidney cancer can actually spread anywhere, even in your little finger. So this is why it's so important to comprehensively do imaging if um, somebody has clear cell kidney cancer that is believed to be of a higher state. The other thing that is important and it's unique to clear cell kidney cancer is that it can actually come back many years after the surgery has been done to remove the kidney. Sometimes, the longest that I have seen personally is 45 years um, after doing the surgery. So it can really come back um, at any point in time, although usually it comes back within five to ten years. Um, it's very rare that it will be longer than ten years. And if it does come back, things have changed a lot in the sense that we have many, many more tools in our toolbox to treat patients with um, stage four kidney cancer. And so. The FDA approvals back in the 90s, we only had one therapy um, called interleukin-2, which we barely use nowadays, and it wouldn't work in more than half of our patients. But from 2005 onwards, there have been many treatments, more than 10 or 15 regimens, therapies that have been approved by the FDA, and things will keep evolving. Now, most of these studies that led to these FDA approvals were predominantly, or in many cases, exclusively performed on clear cell kidney cancer, which is another reason why it's important to know what type of kidney cancer one has, because those studies and approvals may not be relevant to other subtypes of kidney cancer. And when it comes to, you know, how do we monitor kidney cancer. There are no blood tests currently to monitor most of the kidney cancer subtypes, including clear cell kidney cancer. The best ways to monitor kidney cancer is to do imaging. But um, imaging can provide high resolution and it it can even detect very, very, very tiny tumors that are one millimeter in size. However, the cancer cells themselves are are very, very small. They're tiny. They're so small to get, it so that in order to get to one millimeter in size, you actually need to have millions of cancer cells in that area. So that means that, you know, you could have hundreds or even thousands of cancer cells anywhere in your body, and we cannot see them by imaging. And that is what happens when somebody has their primary kidney tumor removed, and then the surgeon might say, I removed the whole cancer, and they're right. They removed all of the cancer that they could see, but then there could be other cells that are invisible and that we're not seeing, and then they might, years later, start dividing, and then they might appear in different organs. This scenario where the primary tumor in the kidney has been removed and, we, and the patient may still or may not have these invisible cancer cells is called the medical term is the adjuvant scenario. The other scenario um, is when we know and can see that the kidney cancer has spread to different organs, and that's when the disease is stage four. And the reason why I'm making um, this distinction is that nowadays in that adjuvant scenario, there have been FDA-approved therapies whereby one can receive such therapies in order to eradicate potentially those invisible cancer cells. The challenge is that we don't even know whether those cells are there. And so that means that patients may get exposed unnecessarily to potentially harmful treatments. And this is why it is so important to discuss with your doctor the pros and cons of adjuvant therapies in this setting. If the cancer is confined to the kidney alone, then what we do are what we call localized therapies. That's the, 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 the broad distinction. And when we say localized therapies, we talk about therapies that address the cancer in a specific area. So, for example, surgery to remove the kidney tumor is a localized therapy. Radiation is a localized therapy, we irradiate a specific area, we cannot irradiate the whole body. Or we can burn the cancer, or we can freeze the cancer, or we can do another procedure called ablation. All of these are localized therapies, and which one we choose depends on many factors like how big the cancer is, how healthy the patient is, etc. The other broad types of therapies are called systemic therapies, and that comes from the word system. And these are the therapies that go all over your body to recognize and kill cancer cells. And from the systemic therapies, there are three types that are important for patients with kidney cancers to know. The first one is chemotherapy, classic old-school chemotherapy that everyone knows about, These types of chemotherapies that we may give, let's say, for other cancers like breast cancer or prostate cancer, they typically do not work against most kidney cancers like clear-cell kidney cancer. They can work against certain rare types of kidney cancer. This is, again, why it's important to know what type of kidney cancer you have, but against the more common ones, they typically do not work. The other two types of broad types of systemic therapies do often work against clear cell kidney cancer and other common subtypes. And those other two types are, first is what we call targeted therapies. These usually, but not always, come in the form of pills. And those pills are um, contain drugs that are designed to target, hence the name targeted therapies, certain molecules that the kidney cancer cells express. So it's kind of like chemotherapy, but they're more targeted. They're more specific to the cancer cells. The third type of systemic therapies that have really changed the course of patients with kidney cancer is what we call immunotherapy. Those are usually given through an IV. And what immunotherapy does is that it stimulates the body's immune system to recognize and kill cancer cells. So, immunotherapy is not toxic in itself, but it can produce side effects if your immune system gets too stimulated and it starts attacking your normal tissues instead of just the cancer cells. So if it starts attacking your skin, you may get a skin rash. If it starts attacking your gut, you may get diarrhea, or if your immune system gets confused and starts attacking your joints, you may get joint pains, but any other tissue, you know, could, could, could be a target for the immune system by mistake, in which case we treat these side effects by cooling down the immune system. And along these lines, there is a lot of excitement as well now for new therapies, because things are moving fast, thankfully. In the kidney cancer world, our patients are doing better nowadays than they used to do even compared with 10 years ago. And one thing that is changing is that we're identifying new therapeutic targets for the targeted therapy, so new molecules that the kidney cancer cells express. We're figuring out better ways or new ways (laughs) to target them. We're also identifying, we're finding new immunotherapies um, that may work even in cases and patients where the older immunotherapies do not work. And there are also new um, modalities, new methods of giving systemic therapies like what we call cellular therapies, and by specific antibody agents. All of these are currently under investigation in clinical trials in kidney cancer. And the other big change that has been thankfully happening in the past um, years is that there are now focused clinical trials for the non-clear cell kidney cancer. So that used to be, and it still is a big unmet need, but thankfully there is now push to focus and, and do dedicated trial research for other types of kidney cancer other than clear cell. Now, um, with regards to how the COVID-19 pandemic and currently things like the flu season have impacted the care of patients with cancer, certainly the pa- the patients with cancer were disproportionately affected by the COVID-19 pandemic with high rates of severe outcomes and death, and Treatment decisions in this vulnerable population at the time were altered to a major degree during the pandemic. There were significant disruptions of care, surgeries were delayed, uh, all of these things. Thankfully, we're currently past that. We're not experiencing such disruptions any longer um, it was true at the time that from the systemic therapies, chemotherapy, the old school chemotherapy could increase the risk of death if, some, if somebody had COVID at the same time. We didn't necessarily see the same signals for targeted therapies and immunotherapies. Another challenge was, you know, not having loved ones close by during visits. They had to FaceTime or be on the phone. And that makes a difference. It actually it helps patients a lot to have their loved ones beside them during um, clinic visits. Um, But uh, at the same time, the other side of the coin is that the COVID-19 pandemic did force us to improve our infrastructures, to incorporate telemedicine more, and we're still learning how to harness this to improve the care of our patients better than before. It, 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 the telemedicine has a lot of advantages, but it ha- it also poses the risk of more fragmented care. So we're still fine-tuning how to balance this aspect. Of course, you know, we're now, nowadays mindful as well of other viruses like the flu season, which has currently passed in most states. But still, you know, it is always important to, to report to your doctors if you have any unusual symptoms like fever or other concerning symptoms and with that said I'll be happy to pass the baton to the next speaker and happy to answer any questions you guys might have
1: oh thank you so much Dr. Nassal. that was an outstanding presentation really stellar and you actually set the stage for the program today um, giving lots of information I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A thank you so much and our next speaker is Dr. Chetham Murphy. And Dr. Emma Murphy is a medical oncologist, genitourinary oncology clinic, urology department, Mays Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio M.D. Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Emma Murphy will be addressing the targeted cancer therapies, the role of clinical trials, how research contributes to treatment options, managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, quality of life, concerns, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rama Murphy.
3: Hey, everyone. Uh, Great to be on this call, and thank you for the opportunity to speak with you. Uh, So I'll start by talking about clinical trials and what a crucial role clinical trials play in cancer treatment and research. So, Trials may offer new treatment approaches in early-stage disease, or they can provide options where few exist in more advanced disease, Uh, really I encourage all patients to consider participating in a clinical trial um, that fits for them uh, because trials are how the field moves forward and how we've been able to develop all of those new treatment approaches that Dr. Massal detailed um, over the past 15 years. Um, Since the approval of sunitinib, um, a targeted cancer treatment pill for renal cell cancer specifically in 2006, there have been dramatic advances in the treatment of kidney cancer, um, with over 10 to 12 new drugs or combinations of drugs approved for the treatment of advanced kidney cancer. Um, There have been advances in molecularly targeted treatment, as well as immunotherapy for kidney cancer. Uh, And these advances have led to improvements in how long people with advanced kidney cancer are living um, and leading to some very long, durable treatment responses. So as Dr. Massal also explained earlier, some of these trials are focusing in adjuvant therapy, so treatment after surgery to remove uh, more localized kidney cancers. Other trials are looking at new agents so new types of immune therapies ways of harnessing our own immune system to fight kidney cancer Uh, other uh, molecular targets that are available um, for uh, kidney cancer as well including some that are associated with a hereditary risk of kidney cancer Uh, and then there are are now studies that are focusing um, in non-clear cell kidney cancer, which has long been a neglected uh, group of kidney cancers. Uh, Dr. Massal, for example, is leading one in medullary kidney cancer. Um, So these are all uh, very important studies uh, that will really advance the, the field forward. Um, and are offering sort of new avenues for treating kidney cancer that uh, previously we could only dream of. And with regards to how COVID-19 has affected kidney cancer clinical trials, uh, I think definitely in the early years of the pandemic, um, there were a lot of changes that had to be made, but now we really have learned how to navigate uh, the COVID-19 virus well, um, have made some special accommodations uh, in order to consider COVID-19 um, as a as a factor, and so really should not be a prohibiting factor in anyone being able to have access to or participating in clinical trials moving forward. So, you know, one of the things I was asked to speak about are tips to manage side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain. Um, and the symptoms of kidney cancer uh, very many, um, often depending on the stage of the disease and what parts of the body are involved. Uh, kidney cancer is notorious for causing anemia and fatigue, as well as issues like fevers and chills, um, even without a coexisting infection. And typically, the best treatment for cancer-related symptoms uh, is effective treatment of the underlying cancer itself. Um, This may involve uh, radiation treatment to painful sites or treatment that affects kidney cancer cells throughout the body, such as the ones that we've discussed. Um, The treatments themselves can also have side effects, um, some of which may be hard to differentiate from cancer symptoms themselves. Um, One of the mainstays in the treatment of advanced kidney cancer now is a class of medicines called VEGF TKIs, which are... um, typically oral treatments um, that are given for kidney cancer. These include medications such as pazopanib, axitinib, sunitinib, cabozantinib, and lenvatinib. And, and these medications are associated with diarrhea in some, constipation in others, um, and these can be controlled with uh, supportive medications like lamodal or Imodium or stool softeners and laxatives, respectively. Um, Other side effects, such as nausea, can often be controlled with anti-nausea medicines. Rash is a very common side effect of these medicines, especially one that affects the hands and feet. Um, And a trick for managing this is using some uh, heavy-duty moisturizing creams. Um, I recommend to my patients something called Utterly Smooth Cream, which can be applied twice daily. And prevention is often the best treatment um, so using the creams right when you start medication can can really be very helpful. Um, one thing to always know is that different people process medications differently uh, and can be subject to different side effect profiles. So the, the key thing is to keep your healthcare team informed about how you're tolerating medicines, what side effects you're having, how things are affecting your quality of life. Um, the more they are kept informed of how you're doing the better they can assist you in managing those side effects and making sure um, that you're getting the appropriate care that you need um, as we also talked about uh, telemedicine and telehealth is becoming very important um, in our care for uh, kidney cancer and as this is a kind of new modality for uh, how we are helping um, uh, deliver health care Um, There are lots of things um, that you can do to sort of prepare better for telehealth and telemedicine visits. I think each healthcare system has different portals, so it's important to try logging in before to make sure that things are working, you know, make sure that all of your software is installed, Uh, Zoom, for example, on your phone or mobile device, whatever you're going to be using, um, so that you don't run into those technical hiccups when you... Uh, are trying to log into your call with your provider. Um, Getting to a place that has good internet connectivity is very important. That way you can really share your screen and have a good, uh, clear communication with your provider as well. Um, Preparing questions, um, whether for telemedicine appointments or in-person appointments is very important as well. Um, And then, as Dr. Massal mentioned, uh, while telemedicine does provide great access, there's some things that it lacks. You know, the, your is not going to be able to see you uh, as well as he or she would be able to in person. So um, if you have physical exam findings, something that you want to show your provider, take a picture of it. You can share your screen and, and show that to, to your provider. Um, oftentimes, some of the medicines that we use uh, can affect your blood pressure and so if you are able to keep a uh, blood pressure log at home and have a blood pressure cuff Available to check your blood pressure that information can be very helpful to your provider as well So trying to think of ways that you can fill in those gaps uh, Even though you're far away um, Physically uh, I think can lead to very successful telehealth and telemedicine visits so with that um, I'll I'll uh, pass the baton on to our next uh, speaker and um, really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you all today.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Remma Murphy. That was a wonderful presentation, um, a lot of wonderful information for everybody to understand and to really uh, utilize um, in their care. So thank you so very much. Thank you. And our next speaker is Diana Burden and Dr. Be- uh, Miss Burden is a, an oncology dietitian with the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center, and she'll be discussing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. And it's my pleasure now to join this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Burden.
4: Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. So, nutrition and hydration are essential, um, not only in your tolerance to treatment, but in providing you the energy to do the things that you enjoy. Um, During your cancer treatment, your diet might be modified. Um, It may even happen before your treatment begins, and it can happen during your treatment and possibly after your treatment. But a lot of this has to do with your side effects and your personal health care plan. Some potential side effects that may happen during treatment can include things like dry mouth, changes in taste, maybe sores in the mouth, a decreased appetite, diarrhea, and possibly fatigue. So during your course of treatment, your nutrition needs can increase, and this may require a change in your diet. Your dietitian is part of your healthcare team, and they're there to help support you during your course of treatment. They can answer questions such as your energy and protein needs, hydration needs, and any modifications to your diet that might need to be made. Even if you are overweight, you can still become malnourished. When nutritional needs are not met, the body uses protein and muscle for energies. So this can increase your risk of fatigue and decrease your endurance. It can impact your, the way you feel, your energy level, and you being able to do, do the things that you enjoy. And so communicating with your dietitian and your healthcare team about any changes that you're experiencing that is impacting your intake, or if you're noticing an unintentional weight loss, please let your healthcare team know. Now, diet is part of your treatment um, plan as far as your dietitian working with you, but there oftentimes are medications that are given to patients to help with some of the side effects, and I want to make sure that you all know communicating with your healthcare team about how to take these medications to where you feel clear and understanding um, on how to use them to help alleviate a lot of these side effects is very important. Um, If you're experiencing issues with nausea or vomiting or constipation or diarrhea, oftentimes those can really impact your intake. And so being able to talk with your healthcare team, am I taking this medication correctly, is very important. Um, it's, It's a big picture when we're looking at you as a person, so it's not always just one thing independently. We talk a lot about nutrition and eating, but we sometimes forget about the hydration component. And dehydration can actually amplify a lot of the side effects that you might experience, such as the nausea and fatigue. Dehydration can also make you feel very dizzy and and, um, not very hungry. So fluid is anything that's liquid at room temperature such as water, sports drinks, milk. In general, most people need between eight and ten ounce glasses of fluid a day, but some treatments may require you to take in more fluid. So again, it's all about your unique needs. So in closing, there are several members of the healthcare team dedicated to you and supporting you during this time. So please reach out to them if any changes occur, the sooner the better. Thank you for allowing me to be part of today's workshop. I'll pass the line back over to Carolyn.
1: Oh, thank you so much, uh, Diana. That was a wonderful presentation and always uh, great information for our participants, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is um, Amy Marbaro, and Ms. Marbaro is Director of Patient Programs, Kidney Cancer Association, and she is a partner organization on today's program. And she'll be discussing the Kidney Cancer Association's free programs and services. She'll be providing information about how to call them, both. Uh, nationally and internationally, and information about their website as well. So, it's it's with great pleasure that I turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Marborough. Well,
5: thank you so much, Dr. Messner. I'm really pleased to be with everyone today and representing the Kidney Cancer Association during today's presentation. Um, Just a little bit of background about the Kidney Cancer Association. Uh, We were founded in 1990 by a small group of patients and doctors in Chicago, Illinois. Um, and we've grown to be an international nonprofit organization. The KCA seeks to be a leader uh, in uh, for education and resources for patients, caregivers, and anyone impacted by kidney cancer. We also promote the science of kidney cancer through two annual research symposiums and a robust grant program, as well as participating in legislative advocacy efforts. We really do aim to be the universal leader in finding the cure for kidney cancer. We're pleased to offer several programs and services. Programs for patients and caregivers include our patient navigator program, our virtual monthly support groups, uh, one for patients and another for caregivers and family members. We also have a step-by-step patient guide, a clinical trial finder that you can find on our website that is new as of uh, last month. We also have some financial resources and much, much more. You can visit kidneycancer.org to view more, re- more resources and, to- and you can also find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, as well as TikTok. Um, we are very pleased and happy to serve any and all kidney cancer patients um, and we hope that you will find our resources uh, valuable and, uh, and if you uh, need additional resources, you can always reach out to our patient navigator um, who can help direct you to the resources that you need. And with that, I'll turn it back over to Carolyn and we can uh, maybe get to some Q&A.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Amy. That was a wonderful presentation and, and a wonderful resource. So many, some of you on the call may be familiar with the Kidney Cancer Association, but for those of you who are not, it definitely would be a go-to organization for people with kidney cancer. So we do certainly recommend that you work with them, uh, call them, take advantage of all of their wonderful services. Now I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care. I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm Senior Director of Education and Training with Cancer Care, and I'm going to be going over with you what all of Cancer Care's free programs and services are. So many people who contact Cancer Care in the United States contact our Hope Line. They call us on the phone, 800-813-4673, and they speak with one of our oncology social workers. And usually they come with a particular question, a problem, and that gets resolved. And then the social worker goes over with them all the different services we offer. So we do offer support to people who call us. Um, We do offer online support groups on many different topics, including kidney cancer. Um, We also offer programs for caregivers, for young adult caregivers, um, for older adult caregivers, for partners, loved ones. So we have really a number of of different types of online support groups, and you can find them on our website at www.cancercare.org, so you can see all the different um, services we offer. We also offer practical, financial, and copayment assistance. That can be very helpful, especially at this time. All the concerns about resources and funding is a big issue for people, certainly. We do provide from cancer Care about a 79-year-old organization, and we've been providing um, this type of assistance for, for 79 years. Actually, that's very important um, in terms of the, the practical, financial, and co-payment assistance. We also offer these workshops that have been around for about 30 years on different topics, both on cancer-related topics, like today's program on kidney cancer, and we also offer them on topics that sort are of general, like on caregiving, um, and other topics that are um, uh, they are all listed on our website as well. And we have quite a few programs coming up, um, so that you want to check that out as well. And we also have a list of publications that you can access. So that gives you a thumbnail sketch of all the services that we offer at Cancer Care. There are many more, but you'll be able to locate them on our website. And now we have time for questions. And I'm going to, to ask that Regina explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. and. We will take as many of your questions as possible. Regina?
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we'll take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question.
1: So this is a question for Dr. Um, we didn't actually discuss this today, so I'm going to ask you for Dr. um, Lasool, um Can you please elaborate on the treatment of low-grade papillary urethia carcinoma?
2: Yeah, so... Um Urothelial carcinoma is typically not associated with kidney cancer. It's a type of bladder cancer. Um, sometimes because there is this organ, this tube called the ureter, that um, connects the kidney with the bladder, and the ureter has the same type of normal cells called the urothelial cells as the bladder. So the ureter, the tube that connects the kidney with the bladder, and the bladder are lined up with these urothelial cells. And these cells can turn into cancer. And when the um, urothelial cells up high in the ureter, close to the kidney, turn into cancer then sometimes this is considered to be, you know, it's called kidney cancer. But in fact, it is a cancer of the ureter, not of the kidney itself. And because of that, it doesn't fall into the subtypes of kidney cancer, the renal cell carcinoma that I mentioned before, and it is treated very differently. And this is, again, why it's so important to distinguish what type of quote-unquote kidney cancer one has. And um, the first thing one does with um, ureter, urothelial cancer of the ureter, is to determine what the stage is. And so it's important to work with your urologist and potentially your medical oncologist to determine the stage, and this will guide the next
5: steps.
1: Excellent, thank you. Um, and um, one of our let's see um, it's a question for, um, for Dr. Masol. I donated a kidney a few years ago and because of my recent renal cell cancer diagnosis was concerned and wanted to make sure the person I donated it to isn't also at risk of developing renal cell cancer should they get checked out. That was-
2: So uh, just to make sure I understand, the person donated one of their kidneys and then they developed cancer on their other kidney?
1: Yes, and they're wondering um, if um, it will affect Uh, the, the other person.
2: Yeah, yeah. So the first thing to consider is whether the kidney cancer that you may have developed is due to some kind of hereditary syndrome in, you know, let's say 10% 10 or less of cases. This can be because you may have a syndrome that predisposes you to kidney cancer. The most common and well-known is what we call the VHL syndrome, um, which predisposes you to various tumors, including kidney cancer, but there are others as well. If you develop kidney cancer, for example, at a young age, let's say younger than 47 years old, then that's something to consider, and you can see a geneticist to see if it is worthwhile to test for the presence of such syndromes. If indeed you have such syndromes, then indeed there is a meaningfully increased risk that your other kidney will uh, develop kidney cancer in the donor in which case, depending on um, the syndrome that you may have, the surveillance guidelines for the donor might be tailored depending, and they might differ, they might be different depending on the syndrome. If instead of having a, a specific syndrome, you have the most common situation, which is, you know, it just happened, then you have to consider and ask and work with your doctor whether this was due to specific exposures that you may have had when you were young. If you had certain high-risk exposures, environmental exposures, um, that could predispose you to kidney cancer, um, then that might also uh, slightly, but meaningfully increase the risk for the donor. So it, it, it really, really depends on how much we can determine what it was that specifically made you develop kidney cancer in your one kidney. That can help a little bit individualize the recommendations for the other kidney in the donor.
1: Thank you very much. Um, So another question. Um, Even after removing the entire kidney, not only the tumor, there is still any chance for the cancer to come back after years.
0: Yes,
2: um, it all depends, of course, on how big the tumor was initially, because the bigger it it is, the more likely it is to send to have sent those invisible cells to other areas. It also depends on how aggressive the kidney cancer was in the primary tumor, and we use terms such as grade, um to, to, to quantify that. There are what we call nomograms, which are um, ways to predict the risk that have been developed for some kidney cancers, like clear cell kidney cancer. They're not perfect, but if you work with your urologist, they can give you a better idea of what the risk of your kidney cancer coming back is depending on the features of your tumor when it was removed. And again, it's important to highlight that, thankfully, the longer time passes the, without us finding any cancer in your body, the less likely it is for the cancer to come back. It could still come back at any point in time, but it, the chances get lower and lower and lower as the years pass.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Another question for you. Um, I'm an avid coffee drinker, but I'm wondering if I should halt the consumption of caffeine during my treatment.
2: Not um, because of how it could impact your cancer itself. We don't have such um, evidence. But if, for example, you drink an, very, very, very high amount of coffee and that makes your heart rate go up and it makes you have tremors and makes you have other symptoms or whatnot, which could impact your therapies, then, yeah, it's probably better to 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 be more balanced. Um, on the other hand, if you are an avid but moderate coffee drinker, you're not overdoing it, uh, and most people, you know, don't really overdo it, um, if you stop drinking your coffee, you might actually make things worse for for your treatment in the sense that it might worsen your quality of life. Um, and it is important to stay strong and healthy while you're receiving your therapies. So it's again a balanced approach is is the answer here as well. Um, don't um, stop taking something that is helping you um, unless your, you have talked with your doctor and healthcare team, and together you guys have decided that, yes, this is worth um, discontinuing because of a specific reason.
1: Excellent. Interesting answer. That's a great question and great answer. Um, and then, um, so the question, another question is, how likely is it for renal cell cancer to become metastatic? So you, kind of, you can answer that in a general so, way.
2: Yeah, in a general way we can it, it of course it is individualized. So we can we can we can look at it in in two different levels. One is the individual level and its patient is unique and so we have to think about its patient what type of kidney cancer they have. So some kidney cancers like renal medullary carcinoma for example, are almost always metastatic. Even if you think they're not initially, you look a few weeks later and they become. So that's a very rare cancer, but you know that's why it's important to think about these factors. Um, it also depends on the stage. It also depends on all of these things um, for each individual. At a broader level, that's the, the high level, the very, very general level, if you look at kidney cancer overall, the ones that are metastatic are... In the range of twenty percent. So those—that is the very coarse, broad, general probability.
1: Excellent. Um, and another question: I find that since starting treatment, I've been overwhelmingly thirsty. I'm wondering if you have any suggestions as to how to combat this, and is this a common issue or unusual?
2: It, it all really depends on the type of treatment you started. So. Some types of therapies, immunotherapies can can do that uh, more often than others, but even the targeted therapies, um, they can impact certain organs in your body that can control thirst, uh, in which case the management might be related to how do we reverse um, that impact, which means that it is this in particular case, it's very, very important to talk with your clinical team, tell them, hey, this is new, I started really feeling thirsty after I started, you know, this therapy, Um, let's work it up. And once they work it up, they may find that indeed the therapy um, impacted in this way and they might come up with tailored ways to reverse that. Sometimes even if they don't find the exact cause or mechanism, depending on your overall health and your lab works, they can give you recommendations to to help um, combat the thirst.
1: Excellent. Thank you. These are really great questions um, and great answers, too. Um, So... And this is another question. Given that kidneys are responsible for filtering out waste, are renal cell cancer patients at a higher risk of contracting infections such as septicemia?
2: That's a great question. Um, no. No, they're not. Uh, the same goes, you know, the liver is also a way that we filter out um, things and patients with, kidney can- with liver cancer also don't have that. So, no. Uh, Patients with kidney cancer are not at higher risk compared with patients with other cancers for developing infections um, just because of that cancer. They may be at higher risk um, in general compared to the general population depending on the therapies that they're receiving. So, for example, the classic scenario is if you're receiving the classic old-school chemotherapy, if you have a specific subtype of kidney cancer that needs that type of therapy, uh, then that does suppress your immune system. And since your immune system is suppressed, uh, you may be more susceptible, more likely to develop infections. The targeted therapies, as I mentioned, they're also toxic, but they're more specific, they're more targeted. And so it's more rare that they will impact your immune system, but they can also sometimes do that.
1: Excellent. And another question for you. um, um, How do I decide whether to undergo complete or partial removal of my cancerous kidney?
2: That's also very, very much dependent on the context. Um, And when I say context, there are multiple factors. Number one, for example what type of kidney cancer you have. This is why, you know, I keep emphasizing how important it is to know your exact diagnosis. For example, if you have renal medullary carcinoma, we never do partials. We will always do, essentially always, never say never, but almost always do um, radical nephrectomies and remove the whole kidney. For many, most other kidney cancers, we can individualize it more. It depends on a lot of variables. Where exactly in your kidney the tumor is located because some locations are more amenable to partial nephrectomy than others. It also depends on how big the cancer is, how extensive it is. It also depends on what your overall health status and your kidney function is in general. You know, if if um, you have more more kidney function reserves, because, you know, you have both kidneys and both of them are working well, and we think that removing the whole kidney might make it less likely for the kidney cancer to come back, then we might choose to do that. However, if you, if for whatever reason, your overall kidney function is not that great, then if we remove that um, whole kidney, then it might increase the risk of dialysis, and we we really, really want to avoid that in which case we may push more for partial nephrectomy. So once again, it is a very individualized decision that is dependent on a lot of variables which are important to discuss with your clinical team.
1: Well, thank you so much for that answer because it actually gives the person a lot of options to discuss with their healthcare team. That's very excellent. Um, so, this particular is asking a question. I recently finished treatment for renal cell cancer, but as a result, I have poor kidney function. Well, um I have to make any dietary changes because of it?
2: Yeah, um, and in fact, um, that that certainly can happen. You know, a lot of patients with kidney cancer only have one kidney because exactly they removed their, their other kidney to remove the primary tumor. So, it is very important when somebody is undergoing therapies for kidney cancer that they try to preserve their kidney function as much as possible. Um, it is generally much easier to preserve your kidney function than trying to restore it. Unfortunately, Um, you know, once your kidney is injured, it's not like the liver that tends to regenerate very fast. The kidneys don't regenerate that well and that easily, which means that it is important to talk with your clinical team and make sure, if needed, that you're followed with not a kidney cancer specialist only, but also a kidney specialist, what we call a nephrologist. Those are the ones that focus more on the kidney function itself. And sometimes either they or the rest of your clinical team, depending on the overall context, will make specific dietary recommendations. They might tell you, depending on the context, that you need to eat more or less um, protein or um, add or remove other aspects from your diet in order exactly to protect and preserve your kidney function.
1: Excellent, thank you. And there's another question for you, Dr. Nassau. If someone has a family history of kidney cancer, should they receive any type of screening for kidney cancer?
2: Great question. It, It really depends on what we mentioned before about syndromes. So if your family member developed their kidney cancer because of a specific syndrome, like VHL syndrome, then you need first to check yourself if you have that same syndrome, because the your family member may not have passed that gene to you. Uh, if they have, then you will need to follow the recommendations for screening for that syndrome. and And they may not just be screening for kidney cancer, they may include screening for other types of things as well, depending on the syndrome. So that's why it's important to to receive genetic counseling um, comprehensively in these cases. If it's, you know, what we call a sporadic, a random case of your family member having developed kidney cancer, then the chances that you will also develop kidney cancer are much less than if you had a specific syndrome and so there are no specific screening recommendations for you. But, of course, if you do develop concerning symptoms like blood in your urine, nobody's supposed to be having blood in their urine. That needs to be checked um, comprehensively regardless of whether you have or not a family member with kidney cancer.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. And now, um, we're gonna, as we're about to conclude, I'm going to ask um, Dr. Um, Missal and um, Ms. Marbar to provide takeaways for our audience. I'm going to start with Dr. Massal. Just a uh, just a sentence or two about a takeaway that you'd like people to have from today's program.
2: Yeah, and I think that it, it came a lot in the Q and A as well. How important it is to know your diagnosis, not just you know broadly that oh I have kidney cancer, but what exactly type of kidney cancer, what is the stage. What are all of these aspects? So that's important. Continue to to advocate for yourselves. Work with advocacy organizations. They they make a huge difference, indeed. Um, also pushing for research, and that's another takeaway that research is is evolving um, in coordination with the needs of the patients. Um, and the last thing, again, it, it came up a lot in the Q and A, as you guys saw, is how important it is to individualize your care, communicate with your clinical teams, talk with them, advocate for yourselves, ask questions, and make sure that you receive answers that are satisfactory to you.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much. And Ms. Barber, do you want to comment as well as a takeaway?
5: Yeah, definitely. I think that's the most important thing um, that I you know, have heard throughout the, the conversation today Um, uh, are about treatment options. And speaking to clinical trials specifically, um, I think that there's been so much advancement in the treatment of kidney cancer over the last, you know, uh, 10 to 15 years. And there's so much more um, opportunities uh, for treatment options with respect to clinical trials as well uh, today and in the future. And so, you know, talking to your doctor of a, if, a, if a clinical trial might be right for you um, or when it might be right for you if, if needed, I think that that is um, a really important takeaway to, to always consider clinical trials as, um, as an option for your treatment um, and how that might factor in. Oh,
1: thank you so much. Thank you. I want to thank all our speakers. Um, They have been phenomenal in today's program, but I also want to thank our participants who asked such great questions. And although we've done this program before, I have to say your questions on today's program were far more extensive and really uh, thoughtful than we've ever had before. So um, thank you to our participants as well. And unfortunately, we couldn't take all of your questions, so I want to comment on that. But those of you who asked a question, have a question that you have in queue that hadn't we didn't get to, or are thinking of another question? Please take your questions back to your treating healthcare team. They do know you the best. They have all your records in front of them, and ask your questions of your healthcare team. And ask them over and over again until you get the answers that you need. That's very important. And also, um, as we conclude the program today, I would not want anyone to feel alone in coping with kidney cancer or any type of cancer. I want you to know that you're part of a community of support. And on today's program, we did we did partner with the Kidney Cancer Association, and we will be sending you a SurveyMonkey evaluation um, in a couple of days. And in that evaluation, we will be providing it's an evaluation of the program, which we always appreciate you filling out. But also, it will include resources that we mentioned during the program, their websites, their information, and so you'll have that at your fingertips. Um, and any other information that we feel it would be useful to you in coping with cancer today, you know, kidney cancer, any type of cancer to some extent. Um, and again, I want to thank you all for your participation and um, and just know that you're not alone, that you have both the Kidney Cancer Association and this one, your healthcare team, of course, you always want to go to them, and of course you have cancer care to contact. So you have a lot of, and there are so many other resources as well, so we will try to include as many as possible, but your healthcare team to start with, Kidney Cancer Association, just because that's their focus, and that's really important. Um, and then Cancer Care for general services and support. So thank you all, and I want to wish you all a very fine day.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.